ATF agents corroborate the existence of a racial complaint against Biden's director nominee. Ted Nugent resigns from the NRA board and an interview with Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski, and I'm also the founder of TheReload.com. This week, we have special guest Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms here to discuss uh, the nomination of David Shipman to the ATF. But before we get to that interview, I'll just give you a little bit of an update on the news of the week. Uh, And before we do that, uh, let me just say that members of The Reload get this a day early. So if you would like to have the podcast delivered to you exclusively before everyone else, you should go ahead and sign up. We're over right on TheReload.com. $10 a month, $100 a year. You get two months off if you buy a year. Pretty good deal, I think. Uh, But I may be biased. So first, let's talk about David Chipman. President Biden's nominee to run the ATF came under increased scrutiny this week after I published an exclusive piece at The Reload detailing agents, former agents, current agent, um, and their complaints about his demeanor as well as his long history of working for gun control groups and how that could affect the performance of the agency if he were to be confirmed. And, of course, they also corroborated the existence of allegations that Chipman made racist remarks while he was in the Detroit office of the ATF when he worked for the ATF. There was a FOIA lawsuit, it's still ongoing, that got filed in June. Um, The group behind that, AAF, claimed that uh, an ATF agent was concerned after hearing Chipman say that black agents, too many black agents, had passed uh, an assessment in order to uh, earn a a promotion and that he said that they must have cheated in order to do so. Uh, And that agent filed a complaint against Chipman. Now, Chipman has confirmed the existence of two complaints filed against him during his time at the ATF. He said that they had been resolved without reprimand. Uh, But he did not disclose the details of those complaints. Uh, That is what's alleged in the lawsuit. Um, Chipman told Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, uh, the Republican, that that these complaints did in fact exist, but that they'd been uh, resolved. Now, after I read news of the lawsuit and the claims made against Chipman, I thought if this was in fact true and not uh, fabricated, that there should be some other ATF agents who heard this same story. And so I went and, uh, you know, did what reporters do. And I asked around and found two sources, uh, a current agent and a former agent who corroborated that they had in fact heard this story uh, before news of it came out in the form of this lawsuit. So uh, that has gotten most of the attention at this point from uh, the political world on Capitol Hill with uh, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, um, calling for President Biden to withdraw Chipman over these allegations, and all of the members, all 11 uh, Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee calling for a new 
hearing to investigate the allegations further to see uh, what is, in fact, inside of these complaints uh, and what Chipman has to say about them. Uh, I did, of course, reach out to the White House for comment from David Chipman, but did not receive any in return, um, and nor did I receive comment from the DOJ, and the ATF itself said that they could not comment on uh, nominees for director. Uh, and so that's where that story stands. We're still waiting to see if these complaints will be released um, and whether or not David Chipman or the White House will put out any sort of statement on it. In the meantime, um, uh, I have been <laughs> um, smeared, I guess uh, would be a proper term for it, by the president of uh, Brady United, which is a gun control group that is supporting uh, David Chipman's nomination, um, essentially claiming without evidence that I have made up these sources and that I have secret motivations from being part of the gun lobby. Uh, now, of course, this is all baseless. The sources are certainly real. Um, this is a common tactic when uh, someone doesn't like a story uh, that features uh, sources whose identities have been withheld. Uh, in this case, the identities have been withheld of two of the three sources uh, because they're actually fearful of reprisal from David Shipman. One said he has a reputation for being a bully and that um, he could see uh, Shipman reassigning agents he doesn't like to far-flung posts. Uh, he would have the ability to do that as director. And so I thought, felt their concerns were legitimate uh, and allowed them to remain anonymous so that they could share their concerns without fear of backlash, for, uh, you know, at their workplace. So, um, of course, I'm also not <laughs> part of the gun lobby. The Reload is a fully independent and reader-funded publication, hence the uh, the pitch for the membership earlier, uh, which, by the way, if you aren't a member yet, you should join, uh, not just to support my reporting, but also uh, to get exclusive access to not only this podcast early, but a bunch of posts that others, non-members, cannot read. So uh, especially a lot of my analysis is usually reserved for members um, where I give my take on the situation and what's going on. Uh, for instance, I wrote recently a piece on Chipman's nomination. The longer he waits in limbo uh, without uh, support from all 50 Democrats, the more it becomes likely that he will not be confirmed, uh, regardless of my latest story or not. So uh, you can check that out if you are a member already on the Reload. Uh, but it's also another good reason to become a member. So uh, you should join today if, if you, in fact, have the uh, $10 to spend on uh, the only place that's going to do this kind of reporting. There, No one else, apparently, has the sourcing to find ATF agents to corroborate whether or not these allegations exist. Uh, I'm the uh, one who did it. So uh, that counts for something, I think, when you're looking for uh, journalism to support or to pay for. Anyway, I also have a story. Uh, speaking of my, my my status as a member of the gun lobby, supposedly, uh, according to Chris Brown of, of Brady, 
Um, I also broke news this week that Ted Nugent has resigned from the NRA board. Um, NRA general counsel John Frazier sent an email to board members, other board members, informing them that Ted Nugent, the uh, rock star who's said many uh, controversial and awful things over the years, frankly, but uh, who has also been a one of the top boosters of the organization um, for the last several decades, uh, he's been on the board. Uh, he's he's no longer on the board now. The NRA said that this was over scheduling conflicts, um, but Nugent had been outspoken in 2019. I'd interviewed him at the NRA annual meeting uh, that ended with Oliver North being removed from the presidency of the NRA and a big uh, blow up during the members meeting. But uh, Nugent himself had said that he wants total transparency from the organization. And that was the main reason that he was going to be a board member uh, and that he didn't believe that they should spend um, outrageous sums of money on personal expenses um, but now apparently he is resigning from the board, but he has not put out a statement yet. All we have is what the NRA told its board members, uh, to this point. So you can check out that piece over at the reload.com as well. But now we're going to move on real quick here to our guest, Cam Edwards, to discuss the fallout of my recent story on David Chipman and how, this could all affect whether or not he becomes the next director of the ATF. All right. Welcome, Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms. I uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I want to take a second here to introduce yourself to all the listeners who might not know who you are. Absolutely. And thank you for the invite. It's nice having the shoe on the other foot for a change. Um, so, yes, I'm the editor at BearingArms.com, the host of the Bearing Arms Cam and Company podcast. Uh, before that, it was Cam and Company from NRA News and NRA TV. And obviously, Stephen, you have been, I, I don't know how many hundreds of times uh, you and I have talked before, but uh, it, it's awesome what you're doing with the reload. I'm really excited to uh, to be a, a guest here on the podcast. And uh, congratulations on making enemies of all the right people with your reporting. <laughs> well, that's not the goal, but uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. Um, yeah, no, and uh, we have obviously uh, known each other for a long time here, and I've, I've long respected you as somebody who uh, is very honest in your writing and in your uh, when you're hosting your podcasts, and and uh, you know, I've, I, and I've been a guest a number of times on your show, so it's great to be able to have you. Uh, come on uh, this show here because I think you uh, provide a perspective that's very rare out there, which is sort of a realistic approach to gun politics. Somebody who's really informed on uh, what's going on in DC uh, and follows it closely, uh, which is, and somebody who knows, who knows guns as well, which is really not a very common combination out there, frankly. And that's why I wanted to have you on to, you know, discuss, uh, some of the big news that broke this week um, that I was able to break over at, at the the reload, um, specifically dealing with uh, David Chipman, President Biden's uh, ATF nominee, who um, mm -hmm. you know there there was a lawsuit filed, uh, FOIA lawsuit filed last month, uh, which sought the release of his complaints filed against him uh, with um, you know internal complaints while he was working at the ATF, which Shipman himself had, has admitted exist uh, to uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, the Republican. Um, and 
the the group that filed those complaints uh, said in an interview with the Daily Caller that one of them was related to uh, alleged racist comments that Chipman had made um, about black agents who had who were up for promotion and how they must have cheated uh, on an assessment in order to get uh, to the that list for promotion. So um, I looked into this uh, complaint. You know, this came out. There was. Uh, not much reporting done on this outside of the initial uh, piece at the caller, which detailed the, the claims. And I thought, well, you know, if, if this really happened, uh, then other people should have heard about it inside the ATF. And so I went and, and asked a number of ATF contacts if they had heard about it. And uh, they have. So that corroborates that this, you know, allegation at the very least is, is something that people had heard at, at inside of the ATF before this lawsuit came out, uh, which obviously mm-hmm. lends some degree of credibility to th- these, uh, the initial claim there. And, and so I've asked the white house, um, and the department of justice for comment, uh, to get me comment from David Shipman, um, and for the release of these complaints that exist, uh, and have gotten no response from them. I have gotten, um, some, uh, criticism from uh, the gun control groups, as you alluded to earlier here, uh, that doesn't really engage substantively with um, the piece. Uh, it kind of just does the sort of – there's a sort of classic move uh, when there's a, a piece like this comes out uh, that, that goes against uh, somebody you're supporting, which is just to say that the reporters have ulterior motives, secret motives, and that their sources are all made up which is essentially what um, the president of, of Brady United has claimed here. Um, but uh, I can assure yeah, you that's a part of the extreme gun lobby. Uh, and which, you know, I, I think their reaction, I think, shows how worried they are about Chipman's confirmation. Because, as you note, Chipman himself acknowledged during his confirmation here with the Senate Judiciary Committee that EEOC complaints had been filed. He didn't get into the specifics of what those complaints alleged, but he acknowledged their existence. So that's a legitimate line of inquiry, Uh, and not just for reporters, obviously, but for those senators who are going to be voting to confirm or or, or reject David Chipman as the permanent director of the ATF. This is something that I think is um, a a real issue, and it's an issue, frankly, that Chipman could have addressed from the get-go had he been more transparent, had he been willing to talk about what those complaints were. But instead, he simply acknowledged that those complaints existed. He said that they did not result in any disciplinary action. But, again, we don't know why that's the case. Were these complaints determined to be completely unfounded? Or was this an example of the ATF going light on agents? Because remember, Stephen, the gun control advocates like Chris Brown, the head of the Brady campaign, they claim that the agency is in desperate need of reform, right? That it's a broken agency, that the gun lobby's had its way with the agency for decades. So so you could make the argument that, you know, uh, well, maybe Chipman got off light because of a culture of uh, you know, either a corruption or a culture of looking the other way within the ATF. We don't know because David Chipman hasn't said anything about these complaints. And it's ultimately up to David Chipman to satisfy those questions that senators have. The fact that the, the, the gun control lobby is, you know, going after reporters for reporting on a legitimate story, A, it, it, it kind of makes you wonder if there's not some fire beyond the smoke. Um, but again, I think it really is a sign that they are 
increasingly uh, of the belief that Chipman's nomination is in danger. Yeah, you know, and, and my interest here, uh, just to be upfront with everybody, um, is in transparency. Like, uh, these complaints exist. There are now allegations that they were over racist remarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's up for the director's position of, of a major agency inside the federal government. Uh, it seems fair to ask for those complaints to be made public and for us, the public, to be able to determine the details of those complaints. Maybe maybe uh, Chipman has a good defense for why these complaints are made or how they're not legitimate. Uh, maybe Maybe he doesn't. We don't know. That's the problem. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen now the entire Republican uh, caucus on the uh, Judiciary Committee, all 11 members of, of the Judiciary Committee who are Republicans, signed on to a letter asking for a new hearing on Chipman um, because of, of, of my story. And uh, they want to see the exact same questions answered uh, here and and. I think that's fair. I don't see any good reason why these complaints should remain sealed. Uh, you know, he, he's not a, a normal citizen. He's up for a, an important position inside the federal government where he's going to be overseeing a lot of black agents, frankly. Absolutely. Um, and, and look, even if even if there are, you know, privacy laws that would uh, preclude the EEOC itself from issuing uh, their findings, David Chibben has a copy. I'm sure David Chipman has a copy of those EEOC findings, the squirreled away in a desk drawer somewhere, uh, and there's nothing preventing him from releasing any documents that he received, right, uh, in, in connection with that EEOC investigation. Or at least giving so, his side of the story. I, I, you know, I'd love to hear his side of the story. Yeah. I reached out for it and didn't get a reply. So, uh, and and the the gun control um, advocates who've complained about the story, they haven't given his explanation either. Um, so, uh, you know, we just don't have all the information yet, and that's my job as a reporter is to go and try and find it. I was able to corroborate that this, these allegations exist and that people inside the ATF had heard of them before this lawsuit was filed. So, you know, that that's what you're supposed to do in journalism. You're supposed to ask around and, and look for these sorts of, of, of answers. And now I've found some. Uh, I'd like more information. It doesn't It's not the end of the story, in my opinion. Right. There's more. We, we should find more. Uh, if David Shipman can exonerate himself from, from these allegations, then he should. I mean, I, I'd like to hear that, and I would print it. If, if he sent me his side of the story, I would absolutely include it in, in my piece or in a follow-up piece. I have no problem doing that. I just think that it's uh, a natural part of journalism to go out and see if you can – corroborate uh allegations made against someone that, that you know it's, i didn't i didn't make these allegations i i simply uh reported on them and found uh found out whether or not people could corroborate them and they could so that's where we're absolutely at. but look this isn't this isn't the brady campaign for uh, better journalism that we're talking about here right this is the uh, i guess they dropped the the brady campaign to prevent gun violence now they're just brady but you know, Chris Brown isn't interested in uh, the, the quality of journalism coming out uh, of, you know, Second Amendment uh, outlets like the, the Reload. Um, she and gun control activists are interested in installing one of their own as permanent director of the ATF. You know, that that's the ultimate goal here. And the, the factual reporting that gets in the way of that, 
um, is what you know leads these activists to lash out. I, they can't lash out at David Chipman, uh, so they're going to lash out at, at the reporters like yourself who are actually bothering to cover this story. And quite frankly, I think gun owners could be uh, even more righteously ticked off at the fact that most media outlets have ignored what you've reported. I haven't seen this in the New York Times or the Washington Post or any other major media outlet. As you say, these are now, you've got agents who, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had at least one agent on the record who said that he had heard these rumors. Well, there were two um, agents, a uh, current agent who, uh, and a former agent who said they'd heard these. And then there was a third agent on the record who uh, both of those agents were um, uh, wanted to be anonymous because they were afraid of reprisals, which is something we can also talk about in a bit. Also, here, yeah. Uh, and then you had uh, Vasquez, who is a former another former agent who worked directly with Chipman, who uh, had not heard of the specific allegations. Though he said um, that it was, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Because uh, allegations are not necessarily something, you know, these sorts of complaints are not necessarily something that is spread widely around. Um, and, mm-hmm. But he had, he did know that Chipman was sent to Detroit against his will, um, and and then he also had a number of, uh, uh, you know, complaints about him uh, outside of this particular accusation. Because the story goes well beyond just. Uh, uh, this particular ac- accusation um, and goes into a number of other issues that these agents had with Chipman uh, and the concerns they have about him, uh, you know, going forward. But, but yeah, so the, there's, uh, I believe now there's the initial agent who um, told the group that filed the, the FOIA lawsuit uh, who made the actual complaint. Then there was a second one who, uh, uh, you know, backed up the existence of the complaints w- with the Daily Caller's initial piece. And then now you have two more um, in my piece who heard about these allegations as well. Um, and the specifics that they told me matched up with what was reported um, in the Daily Caller. So there wasn't really any um, uh, difference between the, the stories. So, uh, you know, he's alleged to right. have said that uh, to have been surprised by the number of black agents that made it through an assessment for promotion and, and said that they must have cheated in order to have done that. So, uh, and obviously if that's something that David Chipman believes, if he did say that and believes that, um, you know, that's a problem when you're, when you're going to be the director of an agency that has a lot of black agents because, and that has had a history of being pseudo racial discrimination as well. So, um, you know, it's something that I think is fair for the public to have the, the full facts on. Uh, you know, it's just to me, maybe Chipman has a good explanation. Maybe he has a good defense. I'd like to hear it. Um, I think we all would. But but as you say, this is only one part of the story that you reported on. Um, and so in a way, it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, this is, uh, let's let's say the most, ex- uh, no pun intended, when we're talking about the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms and Explosives, this is the most explosive uh, allegation, but the 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 fact that you did have these agents say that they did not want to speak publicly because they are afraid of retaliation, um, I, I think is also important here. I mean, again, we are talking about somebody who spent twenty five years within the ATF, but has spent much of the past decade in the employ of Mayors Against Illegal Guns and now Giffords. 
uh, as a you know gun control lobbyist. This guy is an, a, a, an active, committed, paid-for part of the gun control lobby. Uh, and so to install him at, at the ATF, I think you know one of the agents that you talked to said, look, you know most of us are are non-political. Most of us are actually you know pretty pro-gun, but we don't get into the politics of this. Well, Chibben's nomination itself, I think, is an attempt to politicize the agency. But if he's confirmed, it seems to me like there are a lot of agents who who do have that concern about what that's going to mean for the agency's reputation going forward, what that's going to mean for these agents' ability to work with law enforcement, to work with the firearms industry, because David Chipman is coming into this with a very adversarial position towards the industry that he would oversee. Right. Yeah, and that was the other part of the story, uh, really the, the longer part of the story. These agents had uh, very significant concerns about what the confirmation of David Shipman would mean for the ATF as a functioning regulatory agency, because as you described there, he is a committed activist. Um, now, he said in his hearing that he would put aside his activism and just, uh, you know, uh, apply the law as it is. Um, although there's the, one of the agents described uh, some of the problems with that, because, uh, and this, I just read about this in a member's piece uh, on Friday, but, um, the ATF director, has, there's quite a lot of dis, uh, uh, d- uh, discretion in current federal yeah. law, especially when you look at things like sporting purpose exemptions. Um, I mean, effectively, mm-hmm. the National Firearms Act makes every 20-gauge 20, 20 and 12-gauge shotgun uh, a destructive device by definition because – uh, anything that has a barrel diameter of more than half an inch is considered a destructive device under the National Firearms Act and must be registered, uh, and have, you have to pay a tax stamp for each each one that you own. Um, and the only reason that we don't have uh, every Remington 870 and Mossberg 500 under the National Firearms Act is because there's a sporting purpose exemption for shotguns, uh, and, and that is – one of the big concerns that this agent uh, expressed in, in this uh, members-only piece that I wrote where, you know, he discussed, like, there, there really is a broad level of power that is not generally exercised uh, or not pushed to its limits uh, in the way that it could be by, uh, you know, an activist like David Chipman without – and this is without mm-hmm. requiring any new laws to be passed. This is all right. all, all unilaterally could be done uh, at the request of the the ATF director to the attorney general. And so, um, you know, there's also the the Gun Control Act also has sporting purposes exemptions for ammunition, armor-piercing ammunition, uh, which, you know, we saw a fight over that in the Obama administration when the ATF tried to ban uh, so-called green tip 556 that's popular for use in Mm AR-15s. Um, because they just they wanted to remove it, the sporting exemption from it, and that would have made it uh, effectively illegal to make your own. Uh, well, I mean, look at what they're doing right now with the the proposed rules that are up for public comment. Uh, you know, redefining uh, uh, basically trying to redefine uh, AR style pistols with stabilizing braces as short barrel rifles. Uh, trying to redefine what an unfinished firearm might be to include basically anything that could be turned into a firearm. And, and I'll tell you one that is kind of flying under the radar. I think you and I have talked about this the past uh, in the past, but 
you know, one of the phrases in the Gun Control Act uh, of 68 is that phrase readily convertible, right? right? And so if something is readily considered readily convertible uh, to either a firearm or, let's say, a semi-automatic would be readily convertible to a fully automatic firearm, then, then those items could be uh, regulated under the provisions of the National Firearms Act. You have to register them to the government. You have to pay that $200 tax stamp. And David Chipman himself has talked about in the past wanting to regulate AR-15s like we regulate machine guns. Um, we're now even seeing gun control groups like Brady use this argument in litigation. I don't know if you uh, saw this out of Los Angeles or out of California, but um, one of the lawsuits that Brady's filed, actually there are two now in California, one uh, over the Poway Synagogue shooting, one over the uh, shooting at the Gilroy uh, Garlic Festival, I believe, and Brady is actually making the claim that the manufacturers of the rifles that were used by these killers um, violated federal law because they manufactured a product that could be, quote, readily converted into a machine gun. Now, neither of these semi-automatic rifles were converted, but they're still arguing in this civil suit that these companies did something wrong simply by making AR-15s because they're making the argument that AR-15s are inherently readily converted into machine guns. Um, and this is something, again, this is an argument that David Chipman could make if he's permanent director of the ATF, that, look, we don't need to go through Congress to ban AR-15s. We can just decide that, uh, no, these are actually light machine guns. You know, you could you could convert them into a fully automatic machine gun with a little bit of work. You'd be sure you'd be breaking the law to do it, uh, but but it's it's theoretically possible, and so therefore we need to treat these guns as if they're already machine guns. That's as, you know those are the as you say that's the type of broad discretionary power that the ATF director has, at least a permanent director has, um, and we haven't seen a an ATF director with this type of activist background and activist agenda like David Chipman has had. So we really haven't had to worry about that. I think as much in the past. Mm-hmm. But if Chipman is confirmed, we absolutely have to worry about things like that going forward. Yeah, and, you know, it's not to say that he'd be successful if he tried to do any of these things. Uh, they're obviously fairly radical uh, moves. But it, it, the point is that they're available to an ATF director if they wanted to try and push the boundaries of current law. You would mm-hmm. not have to pass a bunch of laws to try and implement these things. It's not outside of the realm of possibilities to push the sporting uh, purpose exemption or the uh, uh, you know the readily convertible definition to its limits, uh, and that could have very broad impacts, um, and that is what one of the major concerns was about having an activist as director, because like you said, there there really hasn't been anyone like David Chipman to become director. It's kind of like if you appointed uh, you know Wayne Lapierre to be ATF director uh, if Trump had tried to do that. Uh, it would have been somewhat similar to what we're seeing here uh, and would have uh, probably had a very negative reaction uh, on the other side of the aisle, I would imagine. But um, Yeah, and I think a much different media uh, coverage, by the way, had uh, had Trump nominated Wayne LaPierre as opposed to the media coverage we've seen about uh, Jimmy getting nominated. Or even if you know, even if it wasn't Wayne LaPierre, somebody with a, you know, as high a profile as, yeah, as him, or somebody. but let's say it was... Exactly. Or a, a Chris yeah. Cox or a Mark Oliva, but somebody within the the Second Amendment community or the Second Amendment mm-hmm. industry um, or the, the, the firearms industry. Yes, that would have been seen as 
completely unacceptable, a gift to the gun lobby, right? I mean, you, you can you know you can write the headlines yourself. You know what the media coverage would have been, um, but it's a very different thing. You know, when the Washington Post is talking about uh, the professionalism that David Chipman would bring to the job and the years of service and experience, they want to focus on his 25 years at the ATF, at least at least portions of his 25 years at the ATF. Maybe not everything, um, but they want to you know focus on on some aspects of his job as an ATF employee, um, while really just downplaying or or ignoring outright uh, the, the the activism that he brings to the table. And again, that's a legitimate dispute. That's a legitimate complaint that people can have. Uh, but they want to, you know, this is part and parcel of what they're trying to do here. Every complaint is illegitimate, right? It's either a gun lobby smear or it uh, it doesn't matter. It's all outweighed by his, you know, decades of experience within the ATF. Um, basically, you know, as far as the gun control groups are concerned, you're not allowed to say anything bad about David Shipman. Uh, anything, anything that you say about David Chipman that isn't, you know, praising him to high heavens, uh, is automatically uh, uh, discarded for for one reason or another. And look, there, I'm, there are people uh, spreading things that aren't true about David Chipman, but I'm not, I'm certainly not one of them. Uh, and I've reported right. his, on him accurately uh, to this point. You know, it's interesting in the, in the thread that was uh, that Chris uh, Brown put up the Brady president. Uh, she was complaining about these other uh, myths or lies that are out there, at least, or at least claims that Chipman has denied um, that, uh, I, I don't, you know, that got put into her thread about this story, which didn't include any of that stuff because I don't print stuff that isn't <laughs> verifiable. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's uh, dishonest, I think the, the way that, that, that thread was put together. But the, the other problem that a lot of these agents had with the idea of, of Chipman as an activist or really any activist. I mean, that, that's what they've, they all said uh, to me you know, is that the problem with Chipman is that he's an activist, not necessarily that he's a gun control activist, but that he's an activist at all. They don't really want a gun rights activist to be director either. Um, and, and, but in this case, the problem with having somebody who's this adversarial towards the industry as your director um, is that the ATF makes a lot of cases off of tips from the industry, or at least from like your average mm -hmm. FFL, your average gun dealer. And so having somebody in charge who treats FFLs as though they're the enemy essentially, or, or that they're, uh, you know, all potential gun traffickers, um, is something that could have a detrimental effect on the relationship between ATF field agents and gun dealers who give them tips on potential gun running schemes. I mean, that's how a lot of these cases get made. They get tips from FFLs themselves explaining, mm -hmm. you know, what the concern is. And then the ATF follows up on that. And all of the agents involved said that that's how they've made a lot of cases over the years. So if you damage that relationship, which is already perilous. I mean, obviously, you had uh, the the current uh, official, the current ATF agent, uh, who still works there. Um, they've been there for for a long time, twenty plus years, but they're still there. And you know, they described, look, the ATF has a bad reputation among gun dealers and gun owners already, in part because of some uh, gun rights organizations <laughs> who uh, uh, this agent 
thinks unfairly demonizes them to a certain degree. Um, but you know, you don't need to add on top of that uh, somebody who is actively uh, a gun control uh, activist, like literal one, who's paid literally by uh, a number of gun control groups over the years, because that's going to make them much less likely to to try and work with you on uh, you know the the next gun running case that, that they might you know ha- have a tip on. Absolutely. And, you know, look, we can uh, we, we can talk about the the ATF's, uh, you know, reputation and, and whether it is well deserved or not. I would I, I think there are um, there's certainly cause for concern. You look at, you know, everything from Operation Fast and Furious to uh, the storefront sting operations that were a, a part of the Obama administration that ended up being shut down. And, you know, there have been obviously and then going back even further, you know, to the uh, 1990s. Um, yeah, there there are, I think, legitimate complaints and beefs that uh, gun owners have had about sure. the agency. Um, but I will say this, you know, look, the, the, the quickest way to repeal or to get rid of the ATF completely is to put David Chipman in charge, because the next time that Republicans uh, have control of Congress, there would be a huge push to, to defund the ATF, to, uh, you know, uh, just get rid of it completely. Um, if you've got an activist in charge, you've already seen, you know, uh, Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene come out there uh, and say that uh, ATF should be defunded. Well, that position would become a heck of a lot more mainstream uh, if you actually have an activist in charge of that agency. And I think that would, you know, the Republicans would respond one of two ways once they have the power uh, to replace Chipman. Either they would try to shut down that agency completely or they would put their own activist in charge. Right. Which, again, you know, if you're if you're looking for that agency to be uh, professional and above board, you you don't want that. You, you want to see that professional in place. Um, if but, you know, again, gun control activists are not really thinking long term here. I think they, they view this just as a golden opportunity, uh, perhaps the best opportunity that they've ever had to place one of their own at, at one of the highest levels of government and. Clearly, they're willing to fight on this. You know, I'm really kind of surprised that the White House is still saying that David Chipman's their guy. Uh, you know, clearly there are major concerns among at least a few uh, red state Democrats like John Tester and Angus King of Maine and uh, uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Although I, I, I don't know how concerned Joe Manchin might actually be, given uh, some of uh, Politico's report, I think it was, about uh, the, the meeting that he brokered between Jim Justice and, uh, and David Chipman. Um, but there are legit concerns. And so I, I really – I don't know what it's going to take for the White House to, to, to cut Chipman loose. Um, but, you know, you can't keep holding this out in limbo. And, I, frankly, I don't know what comes out. Like if you're – let's say you're John Tester and you're still kind of on the fence about what you want to do. What comes out going forward – that makes you feel better about David Chipman. I don't see how anything comes out in the future that makes me more comfortable to vote for the guy, given the concerns that are already out there. So, you know, I don't know what the end game is here, but I think Chipman is going to remain in a lot of jeopardy. His nomination is going to remain in a lot of jeopardy, you know, even if he tries to address these allegations that we've been talking about here. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. I mean, it's not – these allegations um, 
are, are just getting attention now, really, uh, after my piece went up. And Chipman's nomination was already uh, in limbo well before then. Uh, I think his yep. confirmation hearing didn't really sell a lot of these guys on him. Uh, he spent most of the time apologizing and then uh, doubling down on some of his more extreme gun control positions. So I don't know if that mm-hmm. helped his case much with people like Tester and, and King. But um, it, it'll be interesting to see exactly what happens with this. I think when Trump put up his nominee, uh, you know, and Republicans weren't happy with him, uh, eventually there wasn't ever really like a big – it's not like the Republican senators came out and had a press conference and were like, we're not voting for Trump's nominee. Uh, it was much more, you know – it was much less climactic than that. And it's probably be the same way here. If Chipman does end up going down, um, they probably just won't ever put him up for a vote. And then eventually he'll get withdrawn after everyone's stopped paying attention to the issue. Um, that's what I would more expect, but yeah, you know, I see, I I don't know. To me. So when Chuck Hanenberry was nominated, that to me didn't get nearly as much attention like, we're seeing Politico write these stories about Chipman's nomination in trouble. CNN had a piece, Chipman's nomination. So they're, they're writing that the votes aren't there. They're not writing why the votes aren't there. Right? That's, that's the big difference. So I think if, uh, if, if the nomination were to get pulled, as opposed to, as you say, just kind of quietly tucked on the shelf, and then maybe two or three months goes by and a reporter at CNN says, hey, whatever happened to that David Chipman guy? Um, you're right. That, that, that could very well happen. But I think that there is enough interest here, um, you know, on the part of the even the Washington-based news media. Even if they don't want to cover this issue how I would cover it or how you would cover it, uh, they don't necessarily want to, you know, highlight all of the problems uh, that Republicans uh, have with David Chipman. Um, they do recognize the legitimate story of okay, you got a Democratic president, you got a, a Democrat-controlled Senate. Uh, they can't get the nominee through. Like, if, if that happens, and again, I, I'm not suggesting that we've won this fight uh, by any stretch of the imagination because we, we have not won anything yet. But if that turns out to be the case, I think the media is going to be interested uh, in, in at least reporting on the failure of the Biden administration to get it done. Now, the framing, I suspect, will probably be look at how powerful the gun lobby still is. Right. The gun lobby still wields this disproportionate influence over senators. I mean, we know, you know, it won't be that David Chipman uh, was a bad candidate who brought too much baggage to the table. Right. It'll they'll they'll have their own little spin here. But I don't know if they can actually just ignore uh, uh, Chipman not having the votes if, in fact, it comes down to. Uh, to that, and and you know, Democrats ended up uh, ended up defeating Chipman's nomination. I mean, yeah, you could be right. Uh, although I don't remember them making a big deal about Trump's ATF nominee not not ever getting a vote. Uh, no, but there was so much more that yeah, they could you know be angry about with Trump. You know, <laughs> there's a lot more news going on those days. Yes, true. Um, right, but uh, you know, I actually want to go back real quick to something you touched on earlier, which is. Uh, ATF's culture, I guess, or, or at the very least how ATF agents perceive themselves. Um, obviously, there's, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened with the ATF and things that the ATF has done over the years that um, 
get, you know, have received legit, very legitimate criticism from gun rights advocates. Uh, and you still see it today with the way that they uh, have messed with determinations on things like pistol braces or or uh, the definition of firearm and, and, you know, ghost guns and so forth, uh, the way the agency has sort of, uh, you know, flipped back and forth on the, the legality of certain items like bump stocks and, and, uh, and pistol braces. There's, and then obviously things like Waco and, and Ruby Ridge, where, which involved, you know, the loss of human life uh, and were very controversial uh, in the tactics that got employed in those situations, uh, you know, regardless of the, uh, you know, everything involved in the overall uh, Waco standoff, with, which was obviously, um, uh, you know, a very, very controversial thing for many different reasons. Uh, whether or not you think that the Branch Davidians were, uh, or David Koresh was a good guy or whatever. But uh, I think that there's an important dichotomy to point out within the ATF and that you're seeing that in play with these these agents versus David Shipman, which is that field agents in the ATF, and this is common, I think, in a lot of law enforcement, uh, they're actually relatively pro-gun, I would say, for most of them, in my experience at the very least. And certainly they perceive themselves that way. They're more gun enthusiasts. They kind of, they like guns a lot um, and they view oftentimes their job as just um, prosecuting violent criminals, right? Trying to keep guns away from violent criminals, which is a, a goal that the vast majority of, of gun owners also support, of course. And then there's a difference between those people and the more administrative side, the, the firearms technology side, you know, the people who make the determinations mm-hmm. about whether a pistol brace is a fire, you know, makes your gun into a firearm or a felony <laughs> <laughs> unregistered uh, short barrel rifle, right? Um, and Shipman, the interesting thing that I was told by all three of these sources in the story is that Shipman is kind of a chameleon to these guys uh, from what they've told me at the very least. they The two of them worked directly with him and said he wasn't, uh, you know, he was a good guy to them. He wasn't this anti-gun zealot when he was working at the ATF that he supported uh, the industry and worked well with them when he was actually an agent. But uh, he didn't make that turn to being a gun control advocate until after he left and went to work for some of these gun control groups. And um, so that they, they're all surprised by that turn from, uh, you know, what they viewed as someone like them to, uh, somebody who's more hyper-partisan and, and uh, more of a, a gun control activist now. Um, and I think that could also have a detrimental effect on the agency's view of him internally, uh, how a lot of these agents view him if he's made director. Um, that seemed to be the implication for these guys is like they don't really trust him. Uh, one of them called him a Manchurian candidate because, he, he, you know, he's like people have – when you work at the ATF for a long time, uh, it's not that big of a agency, frankly. It's it's smaller than right. the U.S. Capitol Police Force. Uh, so a lot of these guys know each other uh, and have known each other for a long time. And you know, the, one of the guys who worked with him said, you know, he's asked he's asked around with all of his other ATF buddies, and and like nobody could really get a good grasp on on Shipman and. 
they have this um, issue where like either you know people are hated, people are liked, or there's something in between, but nobody really can nail down what Shipman is like um, personally. And, and so I guess that really stuck with these guys um, and the, these sort of tight mm-hmm. law enforcement communities. I think a lot of them are kind of like that. Um, and, and so Chipman sort, sort of seems to be on the outs of the ATF community. Uh, and so that's not a great sign for, for a director, especially if the one of the main points of putting him in there is that he worked for, you know, for the ATF for a long time. Um, right. And, and, you know, that, I think that's an interesting thing that's kind of been glossed over because of all the attention on, on the, uh, the racism allegations, which obviously are important, but there's a lot more going on with what these agents have said in the piece than than just that part of it. Um, and you know, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on in terms of like when you've dealt with ATF agents, how how do you do you see that same dichotomy between like your field agent and your administrator? Because like another thing that they told me is that Chipman never wrote a case, uh, which was like a big deal to some of these guys, that they had never heard of him writing a case, meaning like he never actually uh, went through the whole investigatory process himself on a uh, particular, um, you know, charge against somebody. And that yeah. was sort of, uh, yeah, I guess, a big status thing for the, these guys inside of the the ATF community. Yeah, and you think again, uh, you know, 25 years, you'd, you'd have at least one case that you could point to. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, what you're describing is almost the uh, the dichotomy that you see in, you know, other police forces where the, the rank and file cops uh, are, are at least more publicly outspoken in support of the Second Amendment uh, than the politically appointed police chiefs, right? And, and so, and the top brass. And so, I don't know if that's sort of the the same issue would work, but I, I think that the slipperiness um, that they describe of, of David Chipman, like, you, you know, we, we worked with this guy for years and years, but we really don't know who he is or what he stands for because, you know, he, he left the ATF and then all of a sudden it, it surprised us to see him, uh, you know, pop up uh, working for these gun control groups. Did he keep his opinions to himself when he was at the ATF before, or did his opinions change at some point? Like, this would have been something that I really would have liked to have seen Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee be able to explore with Chipman. But unfortunately, because of the way that the Democrats set up that uh, confirmation hearing, you know, Chipman was sandwiched in between three other nominees for various federal appointments, uh, and senators only had a couple of minutes a piece, you know, to, to spend on these four candidates. So if they, you know, if they had a legitimate question for this, you know, uh, a person who's up for a U.S. district judge uh, appointment, well, that takes time away from questions they might have had for David Chipman. And, I, again, that was clearly by design. Democrats wanted to uh, to try to make this confirmation hearing as easy as possible for Chipman. But it left a lot of unanswered questions on the table. Like, David, when – you, 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 so you say you're not going to bring your advocacy with you to the ATF if you're appointed the permanent director. Well, when did you actually embrace some of these positions? When when did you decide that AR-15s should be banned, that civilians shouldn't be able to own them, that they should be registered uh, under the federal government, uh, you know, like like machine guns are? When did you decide that uh, every 
uh, transfer of a firearm in this country should go through a background check or criminal penalty should apply. Have you have you always believed this to be the case? It never came up in conversations with your colleagues or or is this something that, you know, you had a change of heart maybe after you got the job offer from Michael Bloomberg when you retired from the ATF? I, I mean, I don't know the answers to these questions, but they're 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 legitimate questions. Uh, and so, you know, now that these Republicans are, are basically asking for a, a do over, asking for a second confirmation hearing, I, a, I don't think Dick Durbin's going to oblige them uh, with a, a second hearing. But, you know, I know that there are a lot of questions that, that weren't able to be asked the first time around that do, I think, have a legitimate bearing on uh, the decision that these senators are going to have to make. Um, and I, I think that it is it, it is certainly, I think, a, a valid concern for these senators to have um, about David Chipman's relationship with ATF employees if he's confirmed beyond beyond his anti-gun advocacy, beyond what, what I worry he would do as ATF director. Again, the whole pitch from the Biden administration is this guy's a reformer, right? He's going to come in and he's going to make this agency better. Well, if agents don't trust him, how is he going to do that? And again, that's a legitimate line of inquiry that uh, neither David Chibben nor the Biden administration really, really want to answer. Yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds from here on out, I think. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you gave us a lot of your time and, uh, and a lot of your insight, which is, uh, which I think is, is fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit more about Bearing Arms? Uh, it's one of the publications that yeah. I uh, personally read a lot and link a lot to. It's one of the best ones out there, in my opinion. There's not... Like I said earlier, there's not a lot of publications that can combine uh, knowledge of guns and knowledge of politics uh, quite as well as, as you can over there at Bearing Arms. Well, I appreciate that. Like, like, you, know, like you, I'm not the, uh, the guy to go to for uh, tips and tactics. Uh, you know, I, I wish that I were, but uh, my specialty really is sort of the, the political side of this, the legal side of our Second Amendment fights. Uh, and that's, you know, generally what we tend to focus on uh, at Bearing Arms. So um, you can get the latest Second Amendment news and information, uh, you know, each and every day of the week. Uh, also, Monday through Thursday, we do the Bearing Arms Cam and Company podcast, uh, which is you know, 20, 30 minutes. It's basically a, a fairly quick look at, at one of the top stories of the day. I wish that I had time to, to do a three-hour show every day uh, like I used to, but, uh, but I don't because I've got the, the writing to do now. But, um, you know, I, I, I do, I, and I really appreciate that you saying that because, uh, like I said, I'm an admirer of, uh, of your work as well, have been for a long time. So, um, yeah, that means a lot that, uh, that, that you appreciate what we're doing at Bearing Arms. I am not... I never really considered myself a writer by trade. I mean, I, I started out in uh, television actually as a, a – well, my very first job in television was the guy who pushed the button that played the commercials. And I worked my way up to running a camera and then, you know, went into radio and was a radio reporter for a long time. So the the writing gig is actually pretty new to me. Uh, Bearing Arms is my first full-time writing job. So – um, the fact that you haven't mocked uh, my writing skill and style, I, I, I greatly appreciate that, Stephen. I thank yes, you very absolutely. much for that. And uh, Bearing Arms also has a VIP uh, membership as well, just like the Reload. Uh, so, you know, if people want to head over there and, and get extra exclusive content, uh, I would recommend it. Um, and plus, you'll get twice as much beard uh, as you do 
<laughs> exactly. Yes, we we give you the full beard uh, on uh, if you're a VIP member. Yeah, you can go to uh, BarryAndArms.com/slash/subscribe. Uh, you can use the super secret promo code Guns and get 25 percent off of your VIP membership. And uh, and who knows? Maybe we'll even have a contest where I'll like I'll send you a lock you of the go. beard when and if I ever yes, finally cut it off. Everyone watching on YouTube, people listening on the podcast might be confused, but go to go to the YouTube channel and and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> I twist the beard. Um, all right. Well, thank you, Ken, for for joining us. You really appreciate. It. I think uh, you're you you gave us some wonderful wonderful thoughts and insights here. So come back again hey. soon. Thank you for the invite. I will come back whenever you want, and we'll have you on uh, Bearing Arms Cam and Company before long, too. Sounds wonderful. All right, and that is it for this week's episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I think Cam gave us some really good insight there into how the whole shipment situation is likely to turn out in the end, but I will certainly stay on top of it for you and keep you up to date on the latest developments on that and everything else going on in the gun world. So make sure you are subscribed over at the reload there's obviously a free weekly newsletter that goes out every friday morning that gives you the latest on what's happened and then there's the members newsletter that goes out on sunday which will include the early edition of the podcast along with my exclusive analysis pieces so uh make sure you go over and join i will see you guys again real soon Gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were ever my own.